Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, Oliver Reeson's complex, nuanced Sydney review of books essay on Craig Sylvie's Honeybee does some serious heavy lifting. Not only does it analyse and criticise this controversial work, it tackles Australian literary criticism itself, particularly how prevailing cultural preoccupations influence the way critics look at or fail to properly interrogate a particular text. Oliver joins me later in the hour to talk about this essay and the issues that it covers. But, hi again, I can't tell you how much pleasure your emails bring me, even though we've never laid eyes on each other. How random life is. Look at us, two strangers, accidentally connecting, falling into friendship in midair. That's a small excerpt from Susan Johnson's latest novel, From Where I Fell, an epistolary novel written as an email exchange between two women. Pamela has just moved back to Australia from France, leaving her fraught 20-year marriage, and has washed up in Sydney adrift with three children, when an email she's trying to send to her ex-husband Chris ends up in the wrong in- inbox, she begins what will be a year-long email exchange with Chrysanthi Woods, a direct but compassionate woman who works for a university in upstate New York. Throughout the exchange, we will learn a lot about both women, their lives, as well as how they and we construct a sense of self and meaning. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Susan Johnson, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. So I've uh, I've burned through your book from where I fell, and it does fall into that very um, sort of well-established literary tradition of the epistolary novel. Um, you've done a couple of emails back and forth, uh, well, not a couple, an entire book's worth of emails back and forth uh, between two women uh, who have never met in real life. Can you establish the, uh, you know, the whole premise of this story for listeners? Well, uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed that the publisher was loath to put anything about this book being in email form because they thought, well, people will think, you know, I don't want to read a book in email form. But I was really harking back, as you say, to the to the old form of epistolary novel. Um, you know, some of my favourite books have been written in letters. And if you think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, that was all in letters. Um, I'd forgotten that until I started to, you know, when I, once I had the idea, I sort of looked at where the, the, the tradition of it. And, of course, 84 Charing Cross Road is all in letters. Some of my favourite books uh, have been written in letters, but I didn't know whether I could do it in emails. Um, you know, once I had the idea, I thought, yeah, it might, might be an idea, but it might be kind of a bit too gimmicky. Um, but, in fact... Um, it became, it was actually harder to do. It, it was one of those ideas that sounds great as a, as a theory, but actually harder to execute. Um, simply because colloquial, uh, emails are colloquial 
colloquial, it's demotic language. So it was quite hard getting a literary form into the email form. But, and it was an awful lot of work. Um, as you say, I've written a lot of books before, but this was unquestionably the hardest I've ever done. Yeah, it's interesting because I was going to ask you about that. Um, I thought it was, you know, you've got two characters in this book and just to sort of set the scene here, uh, the character we start out with is trying to email her estranged husband and accidentally emails someone else who has a a similar sort of um, handle in their email address and they end up, uh, you know, communicating. These are two extremely different women uh, with very different styles, which you've managed to channel beautifully. When I was reading it, I was thinking about, uh, I think anyone who who likes writing at all, who's ever written an email to someone else who also likes writing, would recognise the slightly show-offiness uh, sometimes of, of long-form emails. It's something that you don't really get as much of in the shorter forms of writing. You do get that sort of witticism or other things like that, but but email very definitely lent itself to, uh, particularly I think when one was travelling, that, that real sort of attempt at, at kind of um, travel writing. But this is, you, you have kind of created two faulty narrators through this style and you've also allowed us to look into very personal parts of their lives. So can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the plot that you've established and how how that came about firstly and secondly, what what it is that you're trying to do with those with those yes. characters? Well, well, you, well, you're right to to say, um, you know, it, essentially, it's just two voices. It's like a two hander in a way. So I, I I sort of thought of it as a play in some way, um, sort of like um, dialogue in, in some form. Um, you know, a play between two voices. Um, but I knew those voices had to be quite strong because the characters of those women have to drive the whole book. So they have to have some initial reason to connect. And the initial reason is one of the the characters is is in crisis. Um, You know, her marriage has imploded. She's got three, she's a single uh, parent to three boys, two of whom are teenagers. And if anybody here is listening who's had, um, you know, teenage boys or girls, it's a very difficult, fraught period of life to, to, to cover anyway, even when you have two parents handling them. So she is in the situation, Pamela, who's the woman in Sydney, where she's trying to deal with this kind of moment of crisis. Um, the other added layer of tension in her life besides the imploded marriage and, and, and being a single parent is that her husband is on in another continent entirely and so can offer no support whatsoever. Um, so she's essentially in this moment of crisis when she sends off this email. So Pamela, so Chris, Chrysanthi, she's a Greek-American who is the person who, who inadvertently gets this email, um, is a kind of rescuer in her life. She's a woman who goes around helping people and in some cases, some could say she's a sort of um, a bit of a meddler, a bit of a busybody. Um, you know, she lives her life very much through other people and other people's dramas. So straight away you've got a reason for these two women to connect Um and so instead of, you know, the, the recipient of this kind of blurted out email, Pamela thinks she's writing to her husband, um, we have a character um, who, who, who some people might just say, you know, thanks very much, you know, sorry, it's the wrong email, goodbye. But um, Chris Anthony doesn't. Um, and so 
um, I think that was the original tension. And they have, as you say, very different lives. They're very different in di- very different situations. Chrysanthi has no children. She is in upstate New York. Um, she's a counselor. Well, she's, she works in student relations, you know, if, if effectively processing for SUNY, uh, which is the, the upstate, um, uh, campus of, uh, Un- University of New York. Um, and straight away, these women have, something in common in the sense that they're, they're both highly literate, they're both um, readers, they're both uh, feminists of sort, um, but they're in different sort of positions in their lives. Yeah, it's really, uh, you know, Pamela, the, the initial uh, character, the initiator of the original email, is a wonderful uh, character to, to sort of see things through because she is incredibly revealing of her own life she's incredibly verbose she's she's prone to kind of flights of literary fancy yes. in her writing uh which is you know she's she's kind of a very likable character as well whereas chris sort of keeps her cards close to her chest quite a bit about her own life she pushes back if anything you know if anyone tries to delve into anything personal about her um, but she will reveal everything about the characters around her. She's a, there's, it's a really interesting dynamic that you've set up because the power sort of seems to really rest with Chris throughout um, the entire interaction. And I'm really interested in, um, in why you chose to set it up this way because there's a tension right from the start where you can feel that um, Pamela's very definitely needing this person and is kind of somewhat leaning on them, um, whereas Chris is... I don't know, at times a tiny bit withholding and, you know, you know maybe keeping her on a sort of um, drip of information. It's really interesting. Oh, that's really interesting that you say that because some people hate Pamela. They can't stand her. They, they, you know, it, it, seems to, it seems to get really strong responses. Um, you know, people either like or, or dislike um, one character or the other, but lots of people find Pamela a complete pain in the ass, which is really interesting. And then, but there are some readers who also really um, find uh, Chris's, you know, kind of withholding um, character very difficult, and and they find it too harsh to, towards Pamela. Um, look, it's it's so interesting. The more I've spoken to readers about about these two characters, um, you know, people come up with all these weird and wonderful ideas. And one of them was saying, um, one one person actually suggested to me that that both characters are sort of um, that, that Chris is almost like an idea in Pamela's head. That 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 there's two sides of the same person in some way um but I did actually uh, you know with with any drama with any fiction you've got to have tension you've got to have something's got to be at stake so it's interesting that that you 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 pick out that straight away there was that tension that that's really what I wanted to do to introduce some kind of literary tension you know you've got to have some sort of device to keep readers reading and that was certainly one of them that they're so very different temperamentally and they deal with things in their lives so very differently because Pamela is a big blurter although she says she's not in her actual life and that possibly could be true that that she she, Mm. she's only doing this because um during the course of researching the novel I came across I thought well are there any novels in emails I I couldn't think of any of course it's been in our culture a long time now and and there was that wonderful Nora Ephron uh film You've Got Mail um and I'm a huge Nora Ephron fan I think that, that that you know that kind of writing which is 
kind of supposed to be contemporary domestic women's fiction, and I hate the term women's fiction because we don't have men's fiction, but Nora Ephron is kind of canvassing a a territory of life, which is women's lives, but it it becomes almost like a a work of philosophy in Nora Ephron in some ways. I think she's a very deeply penetrating, profound writer, and yet she's sort of tossed off as a sort of light women's writer and so I was kind of interested in that territory but so but when I was in, in, investigating emails um, I came across this wonderful Melbourne academic called um, Esther Milne who has written quite a bit about the dynamics of emails in culture she's wonderful um, they're, they're quite academic she's at Swinburne but she does actually write about the, um, the email Um, correspondence and one of the things she came to find was that in fact rather than in French in deep friendships where you know there's a very different kind of friendships between women that somehow sometimes email allows a kind of disembodied self it's almost like your whole consciousness is allowed to express itself in some way that you're not hindered by other things in our actual lives so it it costs it could be possible that that Pamela is is in fact a different person in her life, mm-hmm. and it isn't as verbose and as you know um, giving out of all her secrets. In some way, it, it, it email may be a way for her to express herself in a really unencumbered way. Um, and so they have this kind of very pure dialogue in some ways. And then I was also interested in the idea of the Socratic dialogue, which is a, a dialogue of men. Um, and I made a bit of a joke about it, but actually my intentions were quite um, serious in this book. I did want it to be almost a philosophical dialogue about life and the meaning of life. And, and you know, I, I start off with it with a question about states of being. And so I was interested in, in Wolf's idea of, um, you know, uh, becoming a self, Virginia Woolf. Um, and I did want it to be a much more serious novel, but, but sort of hiding within a sort of domestic women's book in the same way that I think Nora Ephron does and maybe wonderful writers like, you know, like I I absolutely adore um, the woman who did Elizabeth Strout. What's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Strout, that that writer. Um, I think she does wonderful things that that are so profound and they're done so lightly but they're actually classed as women's fiction. Uh, it is an ongoing perplexity to me that uh, anything that's set in the domestic realm and has a, a central female protagonist is dismissed in this way when, you know, this is where the big things of life happen. Uh, I think no one of any sort is going to deny that 2020 for everyone was a drama entirely set in one's home. Absolutely. Um, that is, in fact, where, you know, most of life Absolutely. plays out. Um, but, you know, obviously the way that dynamics have been set up historically and the gendered nature of history is that um, there was one gender dominating out there in the world and it wasn't because the rest of us didn't have anything to say or, yeah. or uh, didn't have an internal life or anything of interest going on. So I do think that, that, that that's really worth re-prosecuting. I don't think it's something that we've really, you know, dealt with in our culture and in literature. I think there's still a resistance to seeing something yeah, yes, look, I, I think that's a re- 
high literature. Yes, I think that's really, really true. And, you know, we're still resistant to this idea because even now, you know, there's a lot of hostility about the idea of a, a special women's prize for fiction, you know, and, and I've had conversations with blokes who who say well you know why do you need a special women's prize you know they're, they're, these prizes are out there but but still it's a really really difficult thing within this culture for uh, and look let's let's have a look at the, the political sphere at the moment um where this conversation is is just beginning um you know for, for women to be seen as whole consciousnesses and whole people still we still have the male as the template of what a human being is and i think it translates in so many subtle nuanced ways as well as big ways um but when it comes to literature I, we like you know when jonathan franzen wrote the correction for example, I would argue that that, that territory, the family, has, has been, been written about you know, eloquently and brilliantly by so many other women writers, um, American women writers especially, but, but also in Australia. Um, so it's great to me that the women writers like Helen Garner are now being recognised as great writers, whether they're women or not. But I think there's still a lot of um, discussion to be had about this. And and even now, Franz and um, Nosgaard, you know, when, when Nosgaard did, did his great trilogy of, of domestic life, people were, say, you know, hailing it as a masterpiece. Well, Groundbreaking. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, like <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Rachel Cusk, for example. Um, and mm. what Rachel, I think Rachel Cusk, personally, I think Rachel Cusk is the finest writer writing in the world today. I think she's an absolute master. I, I think it's astonishing that she hasn't won the Booker Prize. Um, you know, the, this is work, someone, a writer working at a very, very high level. Um, arguably, I think she's almost, you know, she, she's, she's basically reinvented the novel. Um, you know, you've got someone who's exceptionally uh, gifted as, as, a, as a, a literary writer, but she also is exceptionally bright. Um, you know, like when I think of the writers I've loved the best, like I think Saul Bellow is, happens to be a huge um, hero to me. I think he's one of those writers who was able to, he was so intelligent that he was able to, to um cross a vast intellectual realm as well as a, a vast, a deep, deeply emotional realm. And I think someone like Cusk is in that same sort of level. Um, so I am all for opening up the debate about what we regard as fiction, what we regard as high art. Look, I, I personally think there are still um, a lot of Australian women writers who aren't necessarily as celebrated as they might be. Um, you know, I, I, I think Andrew Goldman, um, you know, we've got a lot of uh, writers, um, you know, I think that it's lucky that we have got, um, like Julian Mears was a, a great friend of mine, and I think that, you know, her work has now been celebrated. But I can think of many others who, you know, who, who haven't been, and that's why I think the Stella Prize is such a needed thing still. This book is, of course, dedicated to Gillian Mears. I did notice that, and um, that's incredibly moving in the context of this um, book about a relationship between two women. Uh, I wanted to come back to the book itself, though, and to talk a bit about how you've you've played out these uh, these bigger ideas of you know defining oneself. Um, you know, there is that very beautiful use of the faulty narrator where you're never quite sure as you say, how much of the self is a construction and how much of the self is is really allowed out, if you like, in, in these contexts. There's certainly 
this idea of revelation that's going on where the reader always gets to to sort of see more perhaps than the uh, the writer intends them to and that's um that's done really beautifully in a lot of instances and quite powerfully uh, pamela who's someone who spills out her guts onto the page really does um you know, relate the most horrifying experiences she's having at home in a way that downplays them a little and gives them more impact. So she sort of, um, she she admits to being someone who over-dramatises the small things, but she very much downplays the, the enormous things that happen and, and that's used to beautiful effect. And similarly, Chris is sort of, you know, very much priding herself on being someone who's very practical and very straight talking, but at the same time is really, you know, uh, you know, illustrating this incredible drama that's going on that she's really, you know, creating in some ways as well, which I think is is really fascinating. How do you do that? How do you layer in these these levels of uh, understanding and misunderstanding into a faulty narrator uh, style of writing? Yeah, well, that's a great question. That's a really great question because um, I realised pretty early on that I was going to have a, you know, a, a, a dramatic and um, technical problem with showing these people in the round unless I found a way to do that, you know, because as you say, you know, very cleverly, as you pointed out, and, and many interviewers haven't noticed that, 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 that these are performative acts in some ways, that, that these women are not necessarily showing their, 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 their true selves. So I had to find a way of showing them within other contexts. Um, and, and given that they're, they're just emailing, as you say, they're not, they're not like I, I can't, as the author, wander off and, you know, do an omniscient third-person narration. So it's all got to be character-driven through them. Um, so technically, from a craft point of view, that was actually quite hard until I worked out that um, in their telling of stories, what they can do is they, 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 they tell what happened to them, but it's really only what other they're reporting of what other people say to them and they're reporting of the event but you can see them missing what's actually happening in the event um that 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 you know i mean all of us i'm sure and we've all had the experience of we see these friends and you think oh my god can't they see you know like that's like that's a no-brainer whatever the situation is i mean but you know as you know from your own life when you're actually in it you can't actually see, you know, quite often, um, you know, what you, what the best, the clearest course of action. So the, the way to do, I found the way to do that was just to put them in situations where they were uh, revealed, um, by other people, really. Um, and, and like, you know, you mentioned Chris, she's got this, um, neighbor who basically, um, she's, 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 she's overly involved in the neighbor's life you know, much too overly involved in the neighbor's life, you know, like, like sitting, she's just lost her husband. So she's going around, you know, looking after her cooking and cleaning. And she's basically living a whole life through the neighbor's life because she's left her own husband at home. And you begin to wonder early on, well, why, what's going on in her own life? Why isn't she back with her own husband? What's she doing? There's something there. And I, I, and, and then when she finally, uh, withdraws a bit from her neighbor's life the neighbor becomes very annoyed with her and sort of starts this almost poison pen um uh campaign against chris um 
But you can see from this exchange, you know, what happens that in fact there is something else going on. So that's, so I just had to invent situations all the time where you could sort of see them, um, against other people. And, and yeah, and they're reporting other people's words, but setting, you know, it's beautifully done. And I think particularly Chris, because she's not giving anything away of her own volition. And I think that that device that, that you've just mentioned, where, you know, there's another character that's um, waging a campaign against her ultimately, that really does reveal something about Chris. And I won't say too much more about that because that does become relevant towards the end of the well at the very end of the book um which I thought was it was ended in a way that wasn't expected um but actually when you read back through it absolutely was um so I think that's it's really clever how you've managed to achieve that and also to give um particularly Pamela a very strong character arc it's these letters go back and all these letters, <laughs> these emails go back and forth over a year um, and they really do show the progress or the, the things that have happened in those people's lives and, and quite a lot changes. Um, and I feel particularly with uh, Pamela's character that she changes and you've managed to do that in a way that, that you're there to sort of watch that evolve. So I did feel like it had that, that real sense of a, developing relationship um and you know even things like they have a few kind of uh spats I guess guess, um which is is also really well done like how do you how do you have a spat and resolve it with someone you've never met over email. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I mean, like, I'm, I'm so glad you, first of all, so glad you talk about the, the, the character arc because I can't tell you how many drafts I did of this novel. I, I did so many. It took so long to write. Um, probably it, when I was working as a journalist, I was writing it in the morning, five to eight before I went to work. And then um, by the time I, I've been living in Greece for two years, I was a stranded Australian for the last six months of it. But um you know, the, over the whole uh, probably seven months, I was doing the the penultimate, well, the, the ultimate draft um, finally. But it kind of went through about seven revisions. So to get that character arc and the the motion of what happens in their lives took so much work. So I'm so pleased to hear that um, because you know it was really, you know, I, I did want them to end up in a different place by the time they 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 finished. Um, and, and so to get back to the, to the the thing about how do you have a fight with someone when when you, you haven't actually met them? By the time they do actually have fallings out, they they become quite important to each other. You know, they're, they're, um, this sort of exchange of, their, of, of, of ideas and, and their lives have become very important to them both. And so... I, I want, they, you know, there's nothing keeping them writing to each other. You know, they, they, they don't want to meet. Pamela, right from the start, sends a photograph of herself and, and is actually quite keen to meet Chris. But Chris never sends a photograph, is not, is not on Facebook. She's one of those rare people who's, who's, you know, doesn't have any social media profile at all. And she isn't interested in meeting you know, at all. So basically they, they, they're going to be these disembodied selves to each other and, and what's going to keep them connected. Um, but what keeps them connected, I think, is as much themselves telling the stories of themselves to themselves in a way, you know, they're, they're kind of working out difficult periods in their lives. And I think by somehow being able to process that in this form is a means for them both to to get move on in their lives um 
uh, and and uh, like the ending, I know has been much discussed by by readers I, I've, I've spoken to. I mean, without you know doing any spoilers, um, I'm glad to hear that you you thought that because there's been so many different interpretations of that, and I won't go into any of them because you know people need to read it. Mm. But um, you know, I, I, I these characters became so real to me. I have to say, I, I don't think I've read a book. I've written a book, sorry, to the, before that's um, – I know I've, I've friends of mine have said, oh, characters come in and take over. I don't think it's ever happened to me to the extent that it happened with these two. And I really believe that the Chris is out there somewhere walking around the Peloponnese. I can't believe that she doesn't exist. And the same for Pamela. Yeah. And oh, I've got this very amazing story. There's a, um, a woman who lives in the inner west of Sydney, whereas – Pam, where Pamela lives, who's a divorcee going through incredibly difficult situations with her sons. She can't get them off playing games. She's at her wit's end. She's going through a really acrimonious divorce. Um, what's the other? Anyway, she said it was like so bizarre. Is, is her surname Robinson as well? It, it was just the most, she wrote to me, care of my agent, and she said, Oh my God, I picked up this book and it was like, it was so uncanny. <laughs> Written about yeah, my life. She said, and, and, and in fact, I'm going to, she, she's going, um, she works part time at a university um, in Sydney and we're actually going to do an interview further down the track. So I'll be just intrigued to find out. And that's happening more and more. More and more people are coming and saying, this is my life. It's sort of, so I'm, I'm so really thrilled because I think it's, of all my books, and I've written a lot of books. Um, this is the one that, that people are connecting with most deeply. It's really interesting. Um, and possibly because women of, of my, I'm, I'm 64, and women sort of uh, postmenopausal women, uh, um, you know, and, and perimenopausal women, and this stage of life, there are a lot of baby boomers now um, in this stage of life that are uh, maybe dealing with aging parents, um, the, the empty nest. Um, and I think there are a lot of women out here. Um, in fact, friends of mine who are looking on Goodreads, um, I don't look on Goodreads because I, most of my author friends don't because, um, you know, it's, it's just too too distressing one way or the other. Um, so my, my friend Emma went on the other day and she said, it's really amazing. There's either five stars or there's one star from from – Gen Z or Gen Xs who say, oh, all these are kind of privileged white baby boomer types, you know, this just doesn't speak to me at all. So it's it's interesting. Is it a generational thing? Um, do we read in generational ways? Um, well, I think there's certainly different preoccupations. I mean, there's a thinking about this um, book in terms of, say, Live Journal, which is something that was maybe around when I was younger, yes. which is writing a, a live diary yes. um I, I could very much see this being put in that form or set in that form but again this tension between two people is a, a really interesting one but the concerns that are being dealt with I think that that um these particular characters are dealing with things that people of their age or generation would be dealing with and so I think that it's obviously going to speak to people at a stage of life that matches up but I think look you have obviously got this extraordinary ability to to really channel um, the experiences of your uh, of the voices that you've um, that you've created, and I think that whenever you do that, 
it is going to resonate with someone. So again, um, I read so incredibly broadly, I find that a difficult question for me to even approach. But but I'm interested to know whether or not, um, you know, I guess you feel that. Is that something you feel in your own reading? Are you finding yourself more drawn to writers of a similar generation? Or do you do you find things in the voices of younger or readers of different um, perspectives or backgrounds? Because increasingly I, I do, I find um, what I love the most about especially the growing generation of, of writers is that there's I'm getting a language for things that I, I didn't know I needed um, or that there wasn't before. So these kinds of things are, are also extraordinary. Oh, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, and one of the, my great finds uh, just recently is Patricia Lockwood. Um, no one is talking about this. Now, she's in her probably mid-30s, I think now, but she's very much of um, this generation of writers who've grown up with, um, social media so she's she's also she's a poet she's an American poet but she's also um, a, a famous Twitter user she's got millions of followers and this book is almost a kind of you know if, if mine is, is about emails which which is sort of a supposedly you know new form in literature which is not but what she's doing is something really extraordinary she's breaking down um, uh, a novel into really small almost like tweet parts you know, bites. Um, but she's a poet and her language is beautiful, but it's all about the nowness of experience, but the nowness of experience done through the medium of this generation that's grown up as digital natives and how they experience the fractured nature of, of life. So it's, if you haven't read it, have a look at it. It's wonderful. But I also mm. did, um, did a, um, a, a, an ABC radio national thing with with a young writer. And she was talking about um, Ella Baxter's new novel, which, which I'm about to read new animal. And uh, you know, I, I think there's, I'm about yeah, to read yeah, that yeah. Yeah. so I think there are a lot of, of, of new voices that, that, that it's important to hear, you know, like really, and it's wonderful to, 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 read these new new young writers um so yes i i do try and and do that because but you know i'm, I'm also i am interested I, I as i said rachel cast to me um i think is a really fine writer and um i Deborah Levy is also one of my absolute favourites and I've been waiting for the third part of her life trilogy, which has just come out, um, which I haven't read yet, but I will read that. So I do I do find, and Sigrid Nunez is also a new find of mine. Um, so I am very interested in, in you know, writers of my age and, and how they're processing a similar life experience to me. I must admit at the moment that's, you know, I, I'm, I've got the, the new cask and I've got the new Deborah Levy. So I am very, very keen, keenly interested in that. But I also think it's really important to, to read as widely as you can as well. Yeah. Well, I would love to keep talking to you more about this and many other things. Um, but Susan Johnson, that's that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
Why do we avoid direct literary criticism of trans characters and themes when cis writers don't consider the literary function of what they are doing? If they just jam the word trans into their manuscripts, latching it onto a character to see what happens, it will be bad art. When this happens, I don't want to be turned into a whimpering child. I don't want critics to step in and tell the author not to be mean to me. I want critics to look at the work square on and say, this isn't good. That's an excerpt from Not Who But How by writer and critic Oliver Reesons uh, and in their Sydney review of books essay on Craig Sylvie's Honeybee, a book centering a trans character and written by a cis author. The essay offers a nuanced critical analysis, not only of the shortcomings of the work in question, but of the literary criticism itself and the perspectives that it may have missed. Oliver Reeson joins me now to talk about their piece. Oliver, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Al. Now, I've already called and enthused uh, at you <laughs> about the nature of this piece. Uh, it was such a genuine pleasure to read a piece of criticism that really does tackle complex and nuanced issues in a way that, that really honours that. Um, you've really gone in and, and talked about things that don't just interrogate a book but also interrogate how we, we criticise it in terms of, uh, you know, the cultural sort of prevailing cultural sort of interests. I, I mm. want to quote you again. <laughs> I, I, I want to quote the whole essay. In fact, everyone should immediately go out and read it. Uh, You say, we see a concerted effort, even before release, to predict and sidestep criticism of Sylvie, the author, and little attention paid to Honeybee, the book. This kind of coverage ignores the work of the book and chooses instead to set up an imaginary argument in which they either defend or condemn its author. Why is this? Perhaps in an effort to make literature seem as urgent as other forms of culture, journalists, critics and editors focus on the only real people involved, the author and the audience. Can you please tell me about uh, where, you know, how you decided to sort of frame this, uh, this essay and the focus that it takes on? Yeah, um, I think I, I really enjoy criticism, like literary criticism, as much as I enjoy literature. And I think I find it really frustrating in Australia that we often... Uh, criticism often either really worries about being mean to audiences, like in the in the case of like uh, when a, a book featuring a trans person comes out, and everyone worries about what the trans people will think. Um, or if you criticize those books, sometimes it can be like a, a lot of fear around. Well, that's you being really harsh to the author. That's really mean. And I really I look I hate that. Um, I hate that vibe because um, I think what I really want from art and what I speak to in the essay is is um, like a moment of transcendence where it's, where literature isn't about you know the author or the reader it's about something that's been invented and created and is incredible and deeply connected to you know human experience that that you that you actually sort of forget that a human created it um, right Absolutely. Look, I, I think you've, you've really called out a false dichotomy in these um, in these kind of acts of criticism that I think is really fascinating and one that you know I'm, I really enjoyed seeing written about in the way that you have. You've 
you've contested, as all good pieces of criticism do, you've really contextualised your criticism of the work itself uh, in examinations of other works, both by cis, uh, cis authors and also trans mm -hmm. authors. And you've really gone there with what exactly is wrong with the work, which again, I just went, yes, this is what you want from literary criticism. What is the author doing? It's not just that mm. they're crossing a sensitivity line or they're appropriate, it's an appropriative text in some way and, and those things yeah. can definitely be argued. You're mm. saying it's more than that. They just haven't done a good job of yeah. creating this character. Because it's not, I think, I think books are not just about how they make us feel which isn't to discount that as relevant and interesting, but, but it's often sort of all we talk about, like, was it, did it make you feel good or did it make you feel bad? And it's really kind of, it can, just focusing on that can become really boring. And I, 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 I'm really interested in what authors do and, and how they use language. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I, I often find myself craving more of that focus in literary criticism. You, you talk about this this really interesting um, sort of point of, uh, you know, I guess the the way in which we consider whether who has the right to tell a story, and you're approaching things from the point of view of as a reader, you want to read a well rendered text, and you you like to believe yep. that there can be an, an act an empathetic act where an author can step in and really uh, examine a life that isn't reflective of their own. Uh, you want mm -hmm. that to be, uh, I think you quote um, Zadie Smith, and I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, of looking at that as a, um, a you know, as a way of sort of um, getting under the skin of things without necessarily having a presumptive experience. Um, yeah. You talk about this in the context of the book Adam, um, and I'd love you to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so Adam was a Y. Oh, it's not YA in the same way that Honeybee isn't YA, but it sort of is. Um, <laughs> that was like so it's an adult fiction, but about it's a, whole a other teenage, conversation. <laughs> yeah, a teenage boy um, who goes to live with um, his older lesbian sister in New York City, and he, among her queer friends, he just sort of gets mistaken as a trans guy, and he just like keeps up that charade in order to date um, this lesbian woman who he falls in love with um and it's really controversial and a lot of uh, most of the conversation around that book was just about how ariel shrug is a cis woman and she shouldn't have been writing from trans perspectives and, and all that but i actually think i mean i don't really like that book because ultimately i think it fails but it was interesting there was like there was the possibility that her writing from that perspective and what she was doing was going to be really interesting and opened up, um, I don't know, created opportunities for thought that were, didn't exist before, um, opportunities for thought around gender and trans masculinity and, um, and I know, a lot of things really. But um, yeah, it was just sort of like this very, it's, it, it, I, again, I, I just feel frustrated by um, how limiting the conversations around these books can be because then I also think it ends up limiting what the work that gets produced is because we speak, criticism speaks to books and then books, I think, speak back to criticism. And so when it sort of like stays in this stagnant space, it can be really, um, I don't know, it can be a shame. Uh, I, I'm so sad that we don't have more time together, but I did want to, to pick up on something that you've talked about here, where you sort of look at where Honeybee actually has a moment for you where it could have done something. You talk 
very specifically about the fact that it has a preoccupation with, with masculinity and the, and the central character's relationship with masculinity. And you say the more interesting thing to have done would have been for that character to be fascinated with femininity and their construction of it as a trans yeah. character and, and the nature of, of how we construct femininity in perhaps writing as well. Um, mm -hmm. There's that and there's also this moment that you talk about where the character um, watches... Um, you know, someone on the beach as they, they walk in their body in, in a bikini um, seemingly confident and you think that feels like a moment of great perception but, you know, and, you know, a, a beat or two later or a scene or two later you reveal that perhaps the author um, in a kind of clunky way actually has missed where they hit on something. Um, I'm yeah. really fascinated by this level of, of detail in the criticism. Can you talk a tiny bit about that? Um, yeah, I think because what Craig Kilby does in that book is withholds the, author, the character's gender for quite a significant period of time, and so I, I didn't know, like I knew I could, I knew because of the marketing of the book that it was about a trans character, but I didn't really know how this character was feeling about their gender, and so when they were watching this woman on the beach, I didn't know what they were feeling other than that the text seemed to like be enacting this yearning, this like very quiet, delicate yearning. Um, and it felt so subtle, but then the next page, it's, they're what they're talking about watching the beauty and the beast. And they just sort of, it's like this really clunky, basic, bad line about, um, did they, you know, feel bad for the beast because he is hideous and feels trapped in his body. And it was just like, I, it was just so disappointing after what could have been what, felt like a really subtle, nuanced moment to have this line that was just just bad, just immature, basic, clunky, terrible in every possible way. Um, so, and, and reading that so, so soon after what was really felt beautiful, it sort of just made me feel like that beautiful moment was actually accidental. The sort of the author had just sort of stumbled upon it. Um, it wasn't there intentionally because obviously all things in a book should be connected and should work together. They're not, they're not just like these little moments of isolation. You compare this with a, a work um, that with Detransition de Baby, a recent work by mm -hmm. a trans author, uh, that actually really does, um, again, uh, having, uh, I guess, more of a, a relationship with the subject matter can really go there in a way that can be, that, um, you know, exposes um, many more interesting areas and does it in a way that, that can be nuanced and complex. Um, can you just talk about that comparison? We really only have a tiny little bit together, just very briefly, if you could touch on that, that would be great. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think The Transition Baby is a perfect book, but I do find it really interesting, and I think that it's um, because, or, or possibly because um, Tori Peters is a trans person herself, I think the the way that transness is used as like has a as a narrative device feels sustained and um and it sort of it uh, like wraps around the whole text it's not just sort of like dipping in and out and, and very mechanical there's sort of an awareness and knowledge that definitely like uh is put like throughout the whole book now, look, I, I, I really would love to talk to you so much more. There's, there's so much more we haven't covered in this, uh, in this text, but I do want to commend you on such a fantastic piece of criticism. It was a genuine pleasure to read. Uh, I've read it twice now, and I'm going to read it a third time at least. Uh, again, um, thank you so much for joining me uh, today, uh, Oliver Reeson. Thanks so much for having me. 
That was uh, author, uh, critic and writer Oliver Reeson, uh, who has joined me today to talk about their really fantastic uh, piece of criticism, Not Who But How, which is now published in the Sydney Review of Books. Um, That brings me really right up to the very end of my show. Uh, Thank you to both of my fantastic guests, uh, to Susan uh, Johnson, who uh, spoke earlier about her recent novel, also obviously to Oliver Reeson uh, for talking to me today about their fantastic piece of criticism. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.